Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, I talk to Bruno Waterfield, Brussels correspondent for The Times, on the EU's problems over migrants drowning in the Mediterranean and Greece drowning in debt. We also have an excerpt from this week's State of the Nation debate on the UK economy. Joel Cohen talks about a new Debating Matters project in Israel, and we have a roundtable debate on what we've learned from the general election campaign. The European Union has a lot on its plate at the moment. In the Mediterranean, hundreds of refugees have been drowning as they attempt to make the crossing from Libya to Italy. Yet it seems the EU has been more concerned about keeping them out than keeping them safe. Meanwhile, the economic crisis in Greece, with the Greek government almost bankrupt, and the EU unwilling to provide any further funding without yet more of the austerity measures that have already had a devastating impact on the Greek economy. To discuss these issues, I'm joined via Skype by Bruno Waterfield, EU correspondent for The Times and a regular contributor to Battle of Ideas debates. So Bruno, let's look at the migrants issue first. Can you explain the changes that have happened in terms of the EU's role this year in patrolling the Mediterranean and what came out of last week's emergency summit? Well, since really the sort of background to this is since the end of 2013 with the collapse of the government and effectively the state in Libya, there has been this huge upsurge in people trying to cross the Mediterranean into Europe. And this has also happened alongside on the land borders, particularly between countries like Bulgaria and Turkey. Those borders have really been turned into a, a fortress of the Iron Curtain has nothing on those land crossings. So there really is only one way into Europe where there are no, almost no legal routes to immigration as opposed to pleading that you're a refugee and an asylum seeker. So there's intense pressure on the Mediterranean. It's become the sort of nip point or the pressure point for people trying to get into Europe. So, you know, there seem to be about 12,000 people a week trying to make that sea crossing and um, because when people who are on a boat are usually old fishing boats and they see another bigger ship and they make a distress call and the law of the sea means that vessel um, has to pick them up and that's the way people hope that they will be able to get into Europe. So this is basically a crisis caused by the collapse of Libya, which is a huge territory, has made it a sort of jumping off point to try and get into Europe. So what have the EU decided to do about it? It sounds like... They're more interested in making that border more secure in the Mediterranean as well now, rather than simply helping people out. Well, exactly. I mean, there's no humanitarianism here uh, whatsoever. It is basically about making the border um, impenetrable. There was a lot of talk about the the so-called search and rescue uh, mission that Italy had uh, until the end of last year, Mare Nostrum. Um, That wasn't really a search and rescue mission. Uh, It was was picking immigrants up and they picked up 130, 140,000 immigrants trying to uh, get into Europe. So it's about making the border um, impenetrable. And these people, if they're lucky enough to get to, you know, some godforsaken detention camp on uh, Lampedusa, they make an asylum claim and their asylum claim is routinely turned down. Um, Some of them be nodded through by the Italian uh, border guards at the end of a busy day and they'll end up in uh, Calais trying to get into Britain or they'll end up um, in Germany as sans papier, people without any papers um, whatsoever who are prey to all kinds of criminals and actually the uh, police as well who who won't actually arrest these people because then it would mean they would have to take responsibility for processing their asylum claim um, and certainly in France, certainly in Calais, they just beat them up and, and send them on their way. So the alternative 
is a, a more open borders approach. But the leading British parties would say, and I'm sure lots of parties across Europe would say, about well, you know, there's no room or we can't afford them, we can't afford the public services, etc., etc. Would an open borders approach be yours? And what would you say to this idea that, unfortunately, there's no room? Um, well, the, the population in, in Europe is, is falling. Germany is actually facing a demographic crisis at the moment. The European economy is very stagnant. It could probably do with a, a bit of new blood, some the entrepreneurial skills of people who have made these sort of quite amazing uh, journeys. I mean, I've talked to guys in, in, in Calais and it sounds like, a, it sounds like a, a thriller movie that travels from Yemen all the way into Europe via border guards, you know, dodging radar, dodging the Navy, dodging guys with guns and razor wire fences. I mean, they are incredible stories. And I think if you look at the moment in the 19th century when America effectively opened its its doors and said, which is on the base of the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I mean, perhaps if anybody in Europe showed that kind of spirit and that kind of forward-looking, future-orientated, positive vision of what people could bring and what movements of people um, bring and, and human history is a, a history of migration, then you could approach this problem in an entirely different way. Moving on to the situation in Greece, where do we go from here? I mean, what do you think is likely to happen? Because it does really look like the the end game in some ways in terms of this current situation of trying to keep the Greeks in the euro. Or do you think there will be uh, some last minute deal cut? Um, I'm sure there'll be a last minute deal cut, the capacity of the European Union to, you know, can, kick the can down the road to delay um, is probably almost um, limitless. But it is very you know, they really are at the um, edge at the moment. Greece is about to uh, run out of money. And if Greece runs out of money uh, and defaults on its international uh, creditors are not too bothered if, if the Greek state um, can't pay its its own people. But if it defaults on international um, creditors, then it, it seems to be very difficult to imagine with capital controls, a, a banking crash, etc., how how Greece could stay in Europe. And Greece is paying a terrible price for this. And the government that was elected there in January, uh, Syriza, and government is again being profoundly dishonest uh, to Greeks and it is not passing on um, the message that the Eurozone wants it to capitulate in terms of VAT tax increases, pension cuts and all the rest of it. And that is not being uh, relayed to the Greeks, but it really is either or. If you want to stay in the Euro, then you're going to put up um, with being told by Germans and Austrians and uh, Finns how you run your country. I mean, looking at the bigger picture there, I mean, we seem to have a public debate which is either saying that Brussels and Angela Merkel are being tight-fisted and not allowing the Greeks enough slack, or we're getting the Greeks are, p- are having to do payback for the fact that they've been lazy, their government's been overspending for, for years and years, and they just have to accept responsibility for their own debts. Is there a way that we can look at this that gets around that kind of either-or debate? Uh, yes, I think I think you have to ask the question, which is kind of posed by the whole idea that, of, of Grexit or the idea that Greece could leave the euro of, of what the euro is, a political construction that is, is based on these sort of absurd spending uh, targets in, in lieu of any other kind of um, economic thinking that have become a complete substitution um, for thinking about economics. You have to ask yourself, the question needs to be asked is why is it that the eurozone has the lowest 
recovery rate from the financial crisis and recession in the whole uh, of the world. The, the IMF has talked about a, a productivity uh, crisis in the West that is most acute within the Eurozone. So the Eurozone really doesn't work. So these idiots in sort of Berlin and Helsinki and Frankfurt and Brussels who are telling the Greeks they know best, they don't um, look at the Eurozone. It doesn't um, work. But then again, the Greeks are also um, lying to their own people. There is no easy way out for Greece. And when there is no easy way out, when di difficult decisions have got to be taken, really difficult decisions, and you know, Greece, Greek living standards have, have collapsed by about a third, unprecedented in, in sort of two or three generations. And when you've got to take difficult um, decisions and things aren't um, going to get better quickly, it's better to be in control um, yourself, to be in control of your own destiny and the level of Greek debt, the huge level of Greek um, debt, 300 odd billion euros is mainly a product of, of, of other people's policies. Greece, you know, in, in a way, justice says Greece should default, Greece should take uh, control of its own destiny, but it won't be difficult. And that is a message that Syriza does not want to give to Greeks. Syriza is a bit like Angela Merkel in the fact that Angela Merkel tells the Germans that there's no problem with the Germans, uh, the Germans are all fine, all this hunky-dory, um, and Syriza give exactly the same message to the Greeks, telling them it'll all be okay, um, the euro is a wonderful club of, of European partners, and it's just, it's just lies. And looking at the future for the EU itself, I suppose, more broadly, I mean, if Greece does have to leave the eurozone, and there are plenty of sceptical parties around Europe doing reasonably well, I mean, the true Finns did pretty well in the elections pretty recently. Has the EU project run out of steam or do you think that the response will be to drive for even closer union within the uh, various countries to try and resolve these problems? Um, I think if Greece leaves the euro, then the euro is inevitably called into question. It is not a single currency if countries can you know, nip in, uh, nip out. It basically becomes a sort of fixed exchange rate uh, mechanism. So the euro, if Greece leaves, will definitely be damaged. And I think that the more sort of canny uh, European officials and diplomats know the sort of uh, how quickly things can spiral, unravel. I mean, the Eurozone, in a way, is the highest expression of the EU. It, it basically takes the whole sphere of, of economics and how uh, countries choose to um, spend their national wealth out of uh, politics um, completely. So, and that's in a way that the EU project, and yes, people, people don't like it. You know, French uh, socialists or French people, full stop, uh, don't like to be told um, that it's no longer the job of their national parliament or their politicians um, to decide how a national wealth is allocated, distributed or even created. And that's why you have this sort of uh, popular backlash um, against the Eurozone. And people know it doesn't work and they don't like to see um, politics and the realm of political economy evacuated um, to these sort of cretins in Frankfurt um, and Brussels. And that's why you see um, this this response. And I think it's very important to note that this response isn't any kind of backlash. Um, but it's a long entrenched, if you think, if you could go back to the French and Dutch um, no votes in, in referendums on the EU constitutional treaty. This is now part of European uh, politics. So there's this paradox. The European Union uh, was created to evacuate uh, politics. It was created around this common culture of don't ask the people and mistrust of the people and this idea that if you let voters give true reign to their instincts, you basically um, have the Holocaust. So there's this 
attempt to build a European a union as a sphere by which um, politics could be depoliticized um, and you could find this sort of stability by taking a politics out of conflictual, contested, uh, democratic sphere. But you now have this paradox that the more you try and shore up um, these institutions, the more you create a popular reaction against them. Thank you very much for taking us past the usual arguments on two issues that are going to run and run. Bruno Waterfield, thank you very much. The Institute's Debating Matters competition has been running to great acclaim across the UK for over a decade, but it has always been an ambition to spread the format of the competition, which uniquely to schools debating emphasises substance over style, to other countries. With that in mind, a small team from DM will be heading to Israel soon for a pilot event to showcase the format to a new audience. Joel Cohen is DM's Judges and Alumni Coordinator and joins me now to explain what the event will involve. So Joel, when and where is the event and who will be taking part? The event will take place at, at Tel Aviv University and it will involve six schools from across Israel and also kind of from across the different political communities. So there'll be Arab schools competing uh, as well as Jewish schools and they'll be competing together over a range of controversial issues that will draw out kind of moral and scientific issues being discussed around Israel. So why Israel? So Israel has a strong informal culture of debating that we thought suited debating matters very well, uh, but it was also somewhere our unique approach and format would work well in an Israeli context because there are plenty of key controversial issues to be discussed that, you know, for kind of obvious political reasons often get brushed aside, kind of broader geopolitics of the place. Uh, and we thought debating matters would be a good opportunity for Israeli students of all kinds to get together to discuss kind of key moral issues that might not be so prevalent in kind of broader discussion, both within Israel and in the outside world about the region. OK, so what subjects will the students be debating? Uh, so we'll be discussing global issues like whether or not megacities are good or bad for the developing world. We'll be discussing scientific controversies like uh, animal experimentation cannot be justified. We'll be discussing whether or not social media uh, is rejuvenating political protest in the wake of things like the J14 street tent city protests uh, in Tel Aviv a few years back, as well as whether or not space exploration uh, is a waste of time and money. So what are the dates for the Israel showcase? It will take place on uh, an initial reception where we're being welcomed by the British ambassador, Matthew Gould, to a welcome launch reception uh, at his residence on the 11th of May. And then the following day, the 12th of May, we're being hosted by Tel Aviv University, uh, where we'll have a showcase of Debating Matters' format uh, and where we'll find out who will be our first Debating Matters Israel national champions. Sounds very good, but uh, have you got any other plans for internationalisation? As well as focusing on Israel, uh, Justine Bryan, the Debating Matters director, is also soon heading out to Berlin where uh, the Friedrich Institute, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, are setting up a Debating Matters competition in English in Berlin. Uh, as an accompaniment to the work that they do on uh, public events and political events based around kind of ideas of freedom. Oh, great. Well, thanks very much for coming in to talk to us today, Joel Cohen. This week, the Institute of Ideas Economy Forum, in partnership with the Building Centre, staged a much-needed debate on the UK economy. 
While the election campaign has reduced discussion of the economy to bean counting over public spending, taxation and the deficit, there are many problems to be tackled about economic growth, jobs and innovation over the next five years, issues on which the major parties have been largely silent. A full recording of this week's debate will be available online soon, but here is an excerpt with economist and author Phil Mullen explaining why we have no room for complacency when it comes to the health of the UK economy. I was also going to make clear that there has been this problem of a flatlining of the uh, of productivity in the last eight years. But I think given that here we have four speakers, economist speakers from different perspectives, all saying exactly the same thing, that productivity has flatlined since 2008, the thing that really highlights is the fact that that's not been debated at all in this election campaign between the parties. You know, Productivity has been a missing silent issue. And I'd say go further, I'd say I think the economy has been a missing silent issue which, uh, in this election campaign, which I think is really pretty unique to note. All we've had, I would say, is a bit of a charade of an economic debate around the public deficit, around how quickly each party claims they're going to balance the books. And we can have a discussion about public finances and the public deficit and how important or not, but that's not an economic debate. The economy is about the creation and generation of wealth. That's what we're worried about in terms of productivity flatlining. And the fact that the politicians in their manifestos and in their various electioneering haven't deigned to talk about that, I think, tells us something very important about the state of politics today. Anyway, against that dispiriting background, then, uh, of a sort of a non-economic election campaign, um, I think for the British economy to start to begin to qualitatively perform better, there's just one single thing that is needed uh, today, May the 7th, after May the 7th. Just one thing that I think we need, and that is an outbreak of honesty. Some intellectual honesty about what are the economic problems we're facing and what are the economic challenges that have to be confronted. And, and that's been missing, I think, because I think we have to go deeper in terms of looking at what the source and content of these problems are, because our problems are not transient ones, they're not cyclical ones, they're not ones which can anyway be assessed by whether GDP went up last quarter by 0.3 as it did, or by 0.5, or by, by whatever. That is you know, playing around at, uh, on the surface. What we have to be honest about is that we in Britain are stuck in an economic depression. We have been stuck in a depression for a long time. We are in what I call a zombie economy. We're in a zombie economy which is dead to all intents and purposes when it comes to productive dynamism, but which has a semblance of life to it, which is being propped up at the moment. And I think that's uh, something which we have to face head on. So I think the honesty has to extend to the fact that the problems facing Britain go back way beyond the fiscal deficit, which really only took off in, you know, with, with, with the financial crash, you know, whenever revenues tanked. It goes back way beyond the financial crash itself, uh, way beyond our problems go there, and then way beyond, I think, the, uh, the financial deregulation, which to some extent facilitated all that debt expansion and financialization, which then uh, you know, manifests itself in that financial crisis. The problems go back, this depression goes back, really, I have to say it, to the 1970s. And I know that's you know, before some of you in this room were born, but it's, it, it's a fact, and that's you know, a sad statement that 
the down step in productivity growth, if you look at the, the statistics, took place between the 60s and the 1970s, and nothing has been done to fix that since. It's been bobbling along since then, you know, keeping along at about, you know, about, about the 2%, but it's been supported by a whole series of non-productive activities for that to happen. Now, turning to what's needed, if we could agree that actually our problems are profound and go back a long way, if I were to give my wish list, you know, my post-election wish list, I think the practical steps to revive productivity, to deal with that depression, are not difficult to list, and, 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 uh, and some have already been listed. We need more science, we need more invention, we need more spending on investment, we need a lot more startups, uh, businesses, which uh, historically have been the ones which catalyze the sort of innovating investment which, it, which is needed. We need more skills, training to be able to use those new, new technologies and, and so on. That's all fairly straightforward, but I think we need an extra level of honesty, not just that we're in a depression, but that none of that will happen spontaneously. It's easy to list the things that need to happen, but it won't happen on its own. There's no point waiting to expect that business is going to somehow revive or re re regain its animal spirits uh, and will get its act together and start doing all that, investing and innovating. So this also needs, I think, a fresh approach about what has to happen collectively through the state to bring about this long overdue restructuring. And what that means, I think, is that we have to go beyond the stale diatribe of free market versus uh, the Keynesian view between more state uh, versus less state. Because I think the state, in order to get out of this mess, this long-term mess, will actually need to do both more and less. The more is easy to say. Not difficult to list, as I said. It's more state support for all that R&D and science and support for startups and so on. That's straightforward. And interestingly, if you read the manifesto, as much of that is actually in the manifesto as in word, if not in spirit. Not by any means enough, but it's, it's in there in, the, in those manifestos. But what is not in the manifestos and what is the thing I would end on, well, the most important thing that there needs to be a lot less of is a lot less of government state support for the zombie economy, right? That what's happened over the last 20, 30 years, particularly really going back to the 1980s, is that the state has moved one-sidedly to adopting an economic role of trying to preserve the status quo. You know, historically in the past, the state used to balance two things, promote growth, promote stability. It's come one-sidedly into a stabilizing role, what I call a conservator state. And what it means is that there's a whole panoply of ways from quantitative easing, low interest rates, business subsidies, various ways in which the state has been propping up businesses, propping up zombie businesses, propping up the zombie economy. And I think that's the nettle that needs to be grasped. Getting the state to stop doing things which are propping up this defunct economy is the most important thing to balance and to go along with the, uh, the extra innovations and the extra funding for investment and so on. It'll be difficult because it goes against the grain of everything that's happened over the last 30 years. Because for as long as that zombie economy continues, propped up by the state, what that means is that it is holding productivity down because resources, both funds and people, are being tied up in operating and maintaining low value, low productive activities at the expense of them being available for new innovating businesses. So to conclude, we have to start with a debate. That's what we need because these issues are not fully recognized in terms of how, how bad things are. But that debate has to go beyond recognizing that we're in a depression, but that's a very, very, very important start. But then we have to, I think, look at and assess and interrogate the role the state has been playing, not just being an ineffective restructurer, not just being ineffective at providing those funds for innovation and research and so on, but that it has itself become the biggest barrier 
to being able to overcome that zombie economy. In this, the last podcast of ideas before the UK goes to the polls on 7th of May, we thought it would be an opportune moment to look back on the campaign. If the opinion polls are to be believed, there is unlikely to be a clear winner. Whoever is the next Prime Minister will probably either have to operate as a minority government or cobble together some kind of coalition. But what have we learned from the election campaign and what does the future hold? To discuss this, I'm joined by Claire Fox and David Bowden. So what things have you picked up, particularly as we're in the last full week of campaigning? What stories have you picked up on so far? Claire? Well, I'll start with something that just happened yesterday but created a big furore which was that Ed Miliband went and did an interview on Russell Brand's news programme, Trues. And this kind of, you know, led to a great deal of excitement, people accusing Ed Miliband of, you know, hanging on the coattails of youth, trying to court the youth vote. And it was sort of generally described by his opponents as being absolutely disgraceful kind of brand of opportunism. And I kept thinking, you know, I am no fan of Ed Miliband's, and his opportunism on issues such as immigration, on the kind of way that he's arbitrarily, and it seems to me irresponsibly, thrown around election promises is not one I'm impressed by. But I did actually think that if elections are for nothing else, it's to having as many opportunities to talk to people about your political programme as possible. And it seems perfectly legitimate to me that if you go on the Today programme to talk one particular constituency, you'll go on Russell Brand's very, very, very widely watched youth programme in another instance. I thought actually Ed Miliband went on there, said what he always says. It wasn't that inspiring, but I can't say that he actually accommodated to the youth watching. He just simply related the sort of things that Labour are talking about. The fact that he was dull... And he's got very little to say is the bigger crisis than that he appeared on the Russell Brand thing. But the reason why that story is important is because it shows you that every single big blast of excitement, particularly on social media, but amongst the uh, journalists, the political elite, opponents and name calling, seems to me to be about the wrong issues. So the issue was, where should he have said what he said? Was it a discrediting of the Labour Party that he went on that programme? rather than what he said, which was a disgrace because it was so vacuous, shallow and offered nothing political at all. Yeah, it was an odd thing because I read the stat that said that he's already been watched by as many people as would normally watch an episode of Newsnight, which is not necessarily a great thing because Newsnight's viewing figures are going through the floor. But, uh, you know, and at least it's a different kind of person arguing with him about what he's saying. He's not the usual sort of media suspect. So I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But as you said, dull as dishwater. Yeah, and then, but I think it's just that if anything we should be conscious of in terms of, you know, the belief in, from the Institute of Ideas, the more debate, the better. And, um, you know, wanting to kind of re- recreate a kind of husting spirit of or going on, or, you know, and standing on soapboxes. This was the equivalent of doing that, you know, with technology at its back with a new medium. So it did seem to me to be completely ridiculously old fashioned to sort of say, how dare you do this? But I suppose the whole of the election has indicated to me that, as, as I've said, is that we've been distracted by very superficial things. I think that probably what's happened is, is that we're looking for something exciting to have a row about because the content of the 
various different people's political programmes are so technocratically gathered around the middle with nothing of any great substance. So you end up picking a fight with people over superficial things. And I think that is more discrediting of politics than anything else. David, what have you picked up on? Well, I think for me the most interesting story has been laid out in today's newspapers, particularly with the the Sun in England um, declaring that you have to vote Tory to prevent the disaster of a Labour and SNP pact and the prospect of the SNP ruling over the UK, whereas the Sun in Scotland encourages you to vote SNP and really cheers on Nicola Sturgeon as being the, the great star of the election. It's pretty obvious that it's a short-termist strategy there about boosting conservative hopes in the election who the sun is officially backing obviously the SNP stand to hoover up all of Labour votes and increase the chances of a conservative government but really throughout the whole election campaign what has been striking about the rise of the SNP has been the way in which the conservatives have completely rejected any kind of notion that they are supposed to stand for the union after last year's referendum when there was all of this rhetoric of better together that we are you know better together as one nation that the Scots aren't a people apart as they claim to be the Conservatives have completely been shown up for just willing to jettison Scotland for the sake of being able to win some seats in Westminster um, and not think about the future at all and that's really striking where you kind of think well what do the Conservatives really stand for in any way now if they don't stand for holding the United Kingdom together, a kind of sense of the British state. And they're happy to allow a nationalist you know, separatist party, essentially, to take Scotland to to boost its own figures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the lack of a sort of sense of British long-term interests see, is is really striking um, that you know, that they would uh, undermine the union in that way. And actually, there's an awful lot of short-termism going on in terms of the the politics of it as well. So, so for example, and another you know, another example of that type of thing is the way in which we've got this kind of coalition phobia going on at the moment, where the SNP say we'll we'll definitely not work with the Tories. The, the Labour Party say we definitely won't have even the, the vaguest idea of a formal arrangement with the SNP, despite the fact that the SNP are likely to hold the balance of power in the in the next parliament. And so we've got this weird situation where we could end up with a completely unstable government just because nobody's willing to work with anyone else, not because of some political differences, but entirely party political advantage, both in this election and beyond it. Well, I think that the um, the... The emergence of the SNP is definitely the story of the election in terms of a, a real historic move, actually compounded, as David just illustrated, by the fact that what could be a short-term rise of a of a small party, you know, based on the collapse of the Labour vote and the previous collapse of the Conservative vote in Scotland, now made into a historic moment by the fact that this has led to this uh, opportunistic dumping of the union, it seems to me, uh, by, by the uh, Conservatives. And, and also Gordon Brown today actually said, you know, creating an English Nationalist Party. I, I really agree with Gordon Brown, but he was really right that he was uh, talking about the dangers of that, which then reminded me of the fact that he's the person who completely compromised in a panicky reaction by giving far too many concessions prior to the vote on uh, yes-no vote earlier in the year. So... You suddenly think, what a mess the political elite have made of the British state and running it, all of them. And these are kind of senior political figures. And they're behaving as though it doesn't matter that the British state is compromised through this. 
But similarly, it's apolitical again. So, you know, what really struck me in those debates where Sturgeon, you know, forged ahead, got all these kind of popular votes, everybody saying how marvellously she'd done and so on, were two things. One that so many people said, it's brilliant, the women are doing so well. It has to be the most condescending thing ever known to man or indeed women. You know, as though that's of any interest to anyone. Yes, women are perfectly capable of being articulate and strong. So it shouldn't even be an, a thing that we notice. But it was nobody mentioned what she said. Then when they commented on what she said, it was always that she kind of got the better of the boys. But she was never held to account for anything. And they seem to be incapable of holding her to account. So it's been great that in the last couple of days, our very own Institute of Ideas, Which Law Would You Axe, have aimed by a couple of our writers to axe two of the most pernicious draconian laws brought in by the SNP. What is shocking is that no one else has mentioned them. So if I was the Labour Party and I wanted to make a big fuss about the SNP, and I don't just mean in Scotland, by the way, because I know that uh, there's been a little bit of this from uh, Jim Murphy's camp, I'd say, do you know what these people have done up there? They are going to, you know, criminalise football fans. They Minimum pricing, which in Scotland, by the way, the Labour Party don't support. I'd really draw attention to just how illiberal this SNP party is. But they don't do that. There's a row about Trident. Oh, there's 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 not even a row about that. One of the reasons, of course, the Labour Party don't hold the SNP to account for that illiberalism is that actually they have led with that kind of a liberalist politics themselves when they've been in power. But that's all I mean about we're not even having a, a discussion about the real tensions around either the union or the politics of the SNP, even though nobody stops talking about the SNP. Well, that's where, I, that's where I disagree with you slightly, Rob, because I'm not sure if there has been much coalition phobia, really, or if there has been, it's been of a superficial kind. If anything, it seems to me that one of the reasons that nobody's discussing policy is that everyone's circling each other a little bit in the assumption that they'll be having to do a coalition deal with each other. So no one's really coming out with a very strong, noticeable programme. It's all, all the discussion has been about how they could possibly do a deal with each other. Yes, there's a bit of reaction over here and obviously within you know from from the labor sort of side there's all kinds of discussions about whether the greens or the SNP or what would work in that kind of coalition and everyone's been very vague they're not having that row out properly no one's really gone out and attacked the SNP properly what has been most striking actually was just on the SNP point was you know, for ages they have been asserting themselves to be the people who are going to drag Labour to the left, that this is a left-wing force within British politics who are going to challenge austerity and make radical shifts. And they released their manifesto, and you could barely put a, a cigarette paper between theirs and Labour's. There was hardly anything of any significant difference between that. But that was not really seized upon, really. If anything, Labour went, oh, this shows how much we could we could work with the SNP. didn't say anything about the authoritarianism and not much about the whole nationalist question obviously there's there's an assumption that conservatives and lib dems are are going to be in coalition if the lib dems get enough seats for it to be useful to conservatives they seem to have been manufacturing a couple of slightly faux rows in the last couple of days to perhaps indicate there's a difference between them but in reality that there's a there's a sort of sense that actually everyone feels they will either be in coalition or there'll be some haggling to come they just don't want to have that out in front of the electorate, to tell you the truth. There has been a very cynical attitude towards the electorate throughout the entire process of this election, is that this is not really politics that we're kind of doing. This is actually, it's all very tactical, it's all very careful. And that we all know when it comes down to it, that 
after a bit of instability, they will find a way of working together somehow, but they won't do it on a level of principle. And in, and in terms of this lack of politics, the thing, one of the things that struck me about this campaign is the rise of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, because they have now become like the official referee on everybody's manifestos and are widely quoted. So the forensic interviews that Andrew Neil has been doing with, with various politicians are all based on what well, the Institute for Fiscal Studies says you haven't got any way of raising the £8 billion for the NHS or whatever discussion is going on. And this is something that, that we, we saw to a very large extent in the last US presidential campaign where the fact-checkers became sort of king and the whole political debate became about who's telling you the truth, who's lying. And, and it seems now that the IFS has very much taken on that role in the UK discussion and the, the politics has kind of disappeared and been replaced by this checking of whether your sums add up. And I think that's kind of a really depressing situation to be in where we are not, you know, the electorate in a way are almost not the, the official arbiters anymore, but it's economic think tanks fact-checking manifestos. Yeah, I mean, I, I've really felt that it's an election of auditors and accountants, and I think it does have a really damaging impact on the way that you as the public relate to the discussion, limited though it is, around the economy. I mean, it has actually tended to be limited to welfare and cuts and austerity. But whenever there's any discussion about moving forward it's always well where would you get the money from how would you make that add up how would you make instead of any what do you stand for and then you know accusations of or you're economically illiterate UKIP or, or, or Greens or whatever because you haven't made this work the thing that's been fascinating though is watching the parties fall for that because I was really struck by that in relation to Natalie Bennett and the Greens not that she was unable to articulate the the party's policies but that actually she the only way that she was expected to articulate them was through the the language of figures and she couldn't manage that very well but she should have said oh leave me alone right we're the green party we believe this and i just saw today i think i've made this point before on this podcast but i just saw today that actually a number of commentators have now started saying why do, why haven't the greens talked about the environment and it has to be the question of the election. You know, they keep saying we are the party that's growing most rapidly, gaining most people to join in. And when Natalie was asked, well, you haven't made much of an issue about transport, for example, you know, getting people walking or not, you know, not driving. Or She said, well, until we get public transport to be a reasonable cost, then I don't think we can really tell people to, to use alternative methods. And I thought, my God, even the Greens have just become some kind of soft not even social, you know, sub-social democrat version, you know, it's kind of like Leanne from Plaid Cymru, you know, Nicola Sturgeon leading the way, the Greens, and they all kind of hover around things saying, we don't we don't have much money and we don't want to have to spend much money and we don't want anyone to be horrible to us. So I do not agree with the Greens' environmentalist agenda, but I wouldn't mind hearing it so I could debate it. And when you think about it, they've had more airtime than ever before, and it has not been a central feature of what they've argued for. And what's the point of the Greens if they don't put that forward? Well, I, I mean, what I thought was fairly extraordinary was, you know, when you look at the, the Katie Hopkins column about Lampedusa uh, last week, which is which has dominated my feed like nothing else, actually. It's not discussion about, you know, the election. What everyone was talking about last week in British politics was what she 
wrote in her column on immigration. And you'd never ever occurred to you that there was an election campaign going on, given that she was actually saying, in a way, offering a, a statement of what government policy is around immigration to Europe. The entire focus was on what she had said, whether you're focusing on gunboats, which is kind of what we're actually doing anyway. Nobody was stepping up and saying there's a political challenge to this. No one was even willing in a kind of opportunistic sort of sense to say we'll take massive action on immigration or Europe. These were both issues that all parties were trying to avoid. And that seems to me the real uh, tale of this election is that people aren't engaged in it on a, on a political level. They don't even occur to them that these things could be changed or challenged by a change in the government. That, that issue was not taken up on politicians who are actively involved in this policy. I mean, at most, you've had something of a faux debate between Miliband and Cameron about the, the causes of this crisis line in Libya. And it's fair enough, Lib Miliband was making a reasonable point, which is that this is a bit of blowback from our policy in Libya and Syria. Finally, a point about foreign policy was on the agenda. But there wasn't really that much of a substantive discussion there. It's hardly something Miliband's talked about for a considerable period of time. It didn't even offer a particularly strong principled opposition to the idea of interfering in, in Libya. It was about the quality of what we should have done afterwards. And so that was kind of very striking, that these issues are kind of lurking around but not being discussed in a political way. So... I have been desperately trying to find some reason why I can vote for somebody. Despite this dispiriting campaign, I am still struggling. For every party that's got one or two things that I strongly agree with, there's a whole bunch of other things I vehemently disagree with. Have either of you managed to find somebody that's worth voting for, do you think? You see, I, I honestly think, and this is going to almost sound like as though I'm playing the apolitical cards, but I can't think of another way of approaching it, that the parties have become holograms and caricatures of what political parties are, but there are still some people of conviction and principle involved in politics. So I'm afraid that I'm going to look very closely at who's standing in the local area. I mean, I, I, it was interesting, uh, one of the left-leaning civil liberties uh, lawyers on, on, on Twitter during the week listed a, a group of people who he said, if you want to support civil liberties and vote for civil liberties, and people who are strong on free speech and so on, these names. And then it sort of said, with sorrow, I note they're conservatives. But I think in a way that was a very honest thing to do, because I, I am particularly worried about the illiberalism, the assaults on freedom, some of these big issues that nobody, nobody's touching the election. I'm interested in people who've got some big visions for infrastructure, economic growth and so on. So I I think I've just got to the point now where I'm going to look, well, I am doing that, where I'm looking at who's standing in my uh, constituency and who I feel has got some political conviction and principle left. And I'm not going to discount anyone, and that includes the Greens and that includes uh, UKIP. But without doing a Russell brand, I also think it is not discreditable not to vote. I think that you have to say, even if you go to the polling booth and do none of the above, or even if you don't go to the polling booth, I don't think we're honour-bound because people, you know, suffragettes died for the vote, to, you know, be forced to say, well, I have to put an X somewhere because of that, when actually, you know, if everyone in your local constituencies anti-immigration, anti-growth, anti-humanist, I mean, you know, I'm not voting for any of them then. So that's the way I would, I would give it, that's the call I would make. Yeah, in in my case, I'm probably going to join the the ranks of the terrible people who waste 
all of the rights to to vote that have been hard fought for and they'll be haunted by probably the ghosts of the Pankhursts and everyone else because I can't really find anyone particularly to, to vote for in my local area. It's a firm Labour stronghold. Nobody's really questioning whether it'll there will be any kind of challenge to that pose. What was really striking, actually, was that I looked around the candidates in my area only the other day, and I was kind of looking for some more of the kind of single-issue kind of candidates, the kind of people who've decided to take a a stand on things. You know, from anyone from the Monster Raving Looney Party who would be a kind of trying to hoover up the kind of anti-politics vote to, you know, the odd kind of person who took a stand. And there were quite a few people historically in, in my area, in Hackney North, of people who have done that. Actually, there was hardly anyone outside of the main parties who were standing. I think that was really striking because I think that shows just how disengaged most people actually feel around politics. That there's not even a sort of sense of kind of screw you or you know to try and go out and sort of win a stand. People just want yeah. this to be over. And if they feel if, they, if any politics is to be had, they'll have it outside of the elections. So I would I would happily vote for, for the right candidate and probably good local MPs and. Yeah, I, I still think it would be great to, and probably most important of all, to get a referendum on the membership of the EU, which I think will be a real scandal if that doesn't happen. Obviously, the Conservatives have committed themselves to doing that, and other parties have been very mealy-mouthed. I think that will be the worst thing for the, for the future of the UK, to not even have that debate out seriously. I think that will be a very anti-democratic trend if we don't get that. I wanted to just sort of note something that I find really awful about the election that I kind of want it to end for which is is it's really led to a kind of outpouring of me 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 whinging it's turned the electorate into sort of moaners and I was really struck by this by a poll which was kind of being proudly proclaimed oh look young people are not apolitical look at how much they care about these issues and then it listed in order of what they cared about uh, most and, and they're all very 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 angry about tuition fees very 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 angry about young people not being able to buy houses anyway so the top six you know massive percentages were all about young people so young people being very very angry about young people not getting a fair deal and and uh you know international affairs immigration you know it's like six percent and you think that's not politics that's a kind of me me i'm hard done by now there's a particular thing that's happened in relation to the young uh, that they've been encouraged to kind of do that kind of self-absorbed narcissistic complaint but I think it's actually affected a lot of people where you know the politicians have treated the electorate like we're bribable as though the only way to relate to us is to say we'll offer you a better pension deal we'll offer you a cheaper house deal we won't cut this we won't cut that instead of that grown-up discussion where you say this is what faces the country this is what faces us in relation to the world and this is what we're suggesting is which would then force you to consider who you voted for beyond yourself with some sense of the greater good of society instead of sitting there yourself turned into an accountant and an order to saying if I vote for so-and-so, it'll save me this much money or I might gain £120. It's a cheapening of what democratic choice really is. So if you are getting... Whatever reason listeners decide to vote, don't let it be on the basis of, or at least I'll be a bit better off if so-and-so gets in, because I just think that's a betrayal of yourself, really, but it really is a kind of an end of politics. Well, that's the same disheartening equation that I've been facing as well in my constituency, and I'm sure lots of people listening to this are facing it as well. We await the result with a modicum of interest. Thank you both, Claire and David.
Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. To listen to more of our podcasts or to subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>